When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the Monopoly Money edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. We have a very special guest. Um, We are have an amazing show lined up. This is going to be a really fun one, but partly, mostly because we have an amazing special yes, guest, but also because we're going to be talking about demonetization and any excuse to use the word demonetization is something you should jump at. We are going to talk about fake news and algorithms because Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and author of Weapons of Math Destruction, is here. And whenever there's an algorithm in the news, Kathy, what do you do? I fucking destroy it. You, <laughs> the answer is the answer is you talk about it on Slate Money. I do. Kathy O'Neill, destroyer of algorithms, of conqueror of worlds. We anyway. have um, Jordan Weissman, of course, from Slate. I've never fully destroyed an algorithm in my life, sadly. I am Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I wrote a big article about algorithms once. It yeah, was you did. called um, what was it called, Jesse? The formula that killed Wall Street. Oh, the you formula know, I that killed Wall Street. Completely yeah. committed your of to memory. I, I, I so you uh, expected Jesse to whip out your fucking greatest. I do hits. remember the article. <laughs> it, it was a wonderful. Should we introduce Jesse? Oh, and of course, there is the one and only Jesse Eisinger. Thank you very much. I thought I needed no introduction. Um, <laughs> but but just just for the three listeners who need to know who you are, who are you? I am a reporter at ProPublica. A nonprofit investigative news organization, and you are an investigative journalist. I am and in the flesh. You have investigated. What have you <laughs> investigated? You just published this doorstopper of an article. You sent me the PDF the night before, and it was like thirteen pages. And I was like, "Wow, <laughs> this is a big article." Well, you just have to read the first four paragraphs. That's uh, that's what most people do, or just the tweets. You know, all thirteen um, pages are excellent. Thank you so much. I especially like page eleven. <laughs> that was the best. That's my favorite page, too. <laughs> What's the subject of the article? Oh, the subject of the article is professors who help sell mergers secretly um, in at the government level, uh, producing reports that uh, are often uh, gamed. So the there's a, we are journalists here in this room, with the possible exception of Kathy. And um, one of the things which all journalists know is that if you ever want someone important sounding to come up with a certain opinion, you can always find a professor somewhere who will have that opinion. And it's quite easy to like, you know, there's thousands and thousands of professors around the country on any subject you want. And if you want some expert to give you a certain opinion, you just, it's quite easy to find an expert at some university somewhere who will have that opinion. And in journalism, this is a bit of a game which journalists play because they feel like they can't put their own opinions into articles so they need to phone someone up and get an opinion from them um at the level of antitrust and monopolies and mergers um this is these are 
questions of national import, and yet basically exactly the same thing is happening. And it's e- economics professors for the most yes. part, Yes. Right? So what we're talking about here is, uh, yeah, uh, economics professors or a specialized field of economics, merger economics, antitrust economics called, the the jargon is industrial organizations, economists. And yes, they are selling their opinions to corporations um, for millions of dollars, and they produce reports that justify the mergers when the go- when the companies go to get approval from the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission um, for the mergers because that the government and, and has the to idea is that, that because they can claim to be a grand tenured professor at such and such university their opinion carries more weight so they continue their professorships at such and such university which are probably paying them 200 grand or something even though the overwhelming majority of their income comes from working on these antitrust Exactly. They are leveraging the academic reputations of their or weaponizing the academic reputations of their um, institutions for corporate and personal gain. I'm going to jump in here and mention that it's not just an opinion, really. What we're talking about here are models. Exactly. Um, They're models that, as you point out in your brilliant article, are not vetted by the public. They're like secret. And they're also not held accountable um, like once they come true or don't come true, depending on how the antitrust decision works out, it seems like people don't go back and see whether their opinions, their modeled opinions come true or not. Exactly. So um, we we expect academics to, and when journalists are calling up academics, we're expecting them to give intellectually honest answers. Yes, um, journalists are maybe shopping around for opinions, but we're expecting the professors to have come to those opinions um, through work and intellectual honesty. But in fact, what's happening here is the corporations hire the economists. The economists produce their models. And the models are, as just as you say, not seen by the public or other academics. These are not published in peer-reviewed journals. They just go to the government and the government and the companies and the economists hash them out secretly. There's no... Um, there's really no public vetting at all of this process. Um, sometimes they go to court, but the documents are often sealed by judges, um, even when they go to court, public court. Um, and then the government, for a variety of reasons, never checks three years, six years on to see whether the embedded predictions of these econometric models uh, actually turned out to be true. Whether so, What they're saying, just to yeah. finish very quickly, is they're saying these mergers will not be bad for consumers, will not be bad for the economy. They will not raise prices. And so they have these embedded predictions and we do have no idea whether they turn out to be so true. So Kathy um, has written a great book which talks in large part about um, the m- models of evaluating teachers and this kind of thing, all of these kind of models. And one of the problems that Kathy finds endemically around the world is this idea that models have to iterate. You have to, you you have your model and then you put it into the world and then something happens in the world and your model makes a prediction and then you test your prediction against what actually happens in the world and then you use the actual outcome in the world to improve your model. And unless you are having that feedback loop, it seems that there is a huge level of sort of intellectual dishonesty and secrecy and unhelpful secrecy and counterproductive secrecy going on. And that seems to be exactly what's going on here, that no one is really 
intellectually, honestly iterating their models in light of real world effects. Yes. And the reason is that it's not in corporate interests to do so because it would possibly make mergers less, um, uh, you know, that it would possibly make the government approve fewer mergers. Um, and these companies want to merge. So uh, there's an obvious reason why that's not happening. Um, the government could potentially do this, could vet the models, could put them, make them public, um, do all sorts of things like that, but they don't. Um, and in, part of the reason is this wonderful revolving door. Part of the reason is the revolving door where um, top government officials, both economists and lawyers, revolve into uh, law and go back to their universities and their consulting firms. Um, um, and uh, and then work for corporations. So I think that's a big part of it. And the other part is that they would need legislation and uh, Congress isn't in the mood to um, strengthen antitrust enforcement. Um, and let's be clear, what from what we can tell from academic research, these mergers are hurting the uh, – American economy, that prices actually do go up more than expected from um, all this mer these merger waves that have happened over the last 30 years. American um, corporations are more concentrated now than they were at any time since the Gilded Age. And that may be contributing. Economists are starting to think it's contributing to wealth inequality, um, corporate profits that are far uh, exceeding wage increases, um, business Innovation is stagnant. Um, small business formation is low. We're having all sorts of ills that m in part can be attributed to corporate concentration. But one of the businesses which is booming is this consulting business. Yeah. So one of the things I, I really kind of liked about this article is it, it kind of cuts to one of the kind of fundamental lies, I think, that has been sold about antitrust policy for the past 30 years, which was there was this idea early on, and especially in the 80s, and you talk about that antitrust should be based in sort of some economic science, right? That was the goal, was you're going to make all this less ideological, less about just promoting, quote, competition for competition's sake. And you were going to bring the economists in to make this, to make our, our you know, enforcement rational and efficient. Um, and as time's gone on, you, you, you talk about how these consulting firms that these economists work for will be hired by both sides of a problem. You can see how, depending on who's paying them, they'll come up with a different answer, essentially. Right. And you get that demonstrated that these guys are paid about $500 to $1,000 an hour. And it's pretty clear they're being paid to come up with a specific answer. They're guns for hire. And so that really just kind of undermines this whole question of it's like, okay, how scientific can any of this ever have been? That That is, and I think that's something that you have to kind of wonder then, how do we, re knowing that it's never really science, how do you reorient antitrust I have an idea. Yeah. It comes from a Doctor Who episode I watched with my kids the other okay. day. <laughs> Doctor yeah. Who, like, somehow used his his powers to make peace. Like, there were there was humans against some kind of aliens, and they were negotiating for peace. And Doctor Who made them, like, temporarily forget whether they were aliens or whether they were humans. <laughs> and, like, for the next three hours, you have to negotiate for peace. And you you actually don't know which side you're on. And it was pretty interesting. I was wondering if we could do this with these antitrust cases where we make a pool of money that the government and the corporations who are, have interest in it are both contributing to, and then the people who are hired don't don't know who they're working for. Is that possible? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So <laughs> That's great. It's a great idea. I mean... And that's actually not that dissimilar. It's kind of arbitration I, I, I have in a, a way, but... really bizarre personal... Um, interest in this because my grandfather's last job 
was as a member of the Monopolies and Mergers Commission in the United Kingdom. There you go. And the mergers would, would come to his committee for approval. And that was basically what they did. They didn't like... They didn't see themselves as judges who would get a position from one side and a position from the other side and then have to come up with their own decision. They they just, you know, used their own expertise and came on came to their own decisions. But you're right that they probably had their own priors. I think I think that if you just told a bunch of told these experts who are making lots of money and continue to pay them lots of money if that's what they need um to just come up with one opinion but just don't tell them who they're working for that would be the question is i think as jesse has demonstrated there are experts who generally find that things are never anti-competitive and then there are other experts who generally find that things are always anti-competitive and so it just pushes the problem back one level to well now there's which also, expert do you hire there's also the question of politics right, right because exactly you know if you have a democratic administration administering that this idea of like a you know neutral group of experts the neutral group of experts are still they're probably going to pick neutral experts who are going to find that these mergers hurt competition and if it's a republican administration they're probably going to kind of lean towards experts who are going to want to push and approve these mergers and we've seen that in your article you talk about how sometimes the you know in the george bush administration george w bush administration uh the people in charge of antitrust at justice rejected their own staff's recommendations on this stuff and said go ahead even if even if we're finding that this is probably going to be anti-competitive i don't care there but, is really no such thing as neutral exactly and the economists have sort of sold us on this idea and it's it's um uh a bad uh bad assumption because they make all sorts of um unseen assumptions about the world and also the uh the field is uh makes general it has sort of general beliefs so even people on the kind of pro enforcement side of antitrust accept a bunch of notions about the way the economists see the world that we shouldn't necessarily accept i'll give you one example which is so over the last 40 years as the economists have taken over the field we have now distilled the question of corporate power to um, just the question of whether consumers are benefiting or not, because that's the thing that economists can measure. And so they judge things on what they can measure. But of course, we consider, and the the the, the people who framed the antitrust laws 100 years ago, um, considered corporate power in and of itself to be dangerous because uh, it could distort our politics. And we this don't is, measure that. Yeah. Well. And this is, I think... Also, one of the problems here is that it only this entire mechanism only really creaks into existence when there is a merger. And yes. what you have is a bunch of very powerful monopolies in this country, um, a lot of them relatively young, like Google and Facebook, there's Microsoft, there's Uber. Um, and these powerful monopolies are incredibly profitable. And because they were not created through mergers, there's no one really regulating them as monopolies. Well, I'll make two points of that. That's absolutely right. Except for um, one thing is that a lot of these guys are products of small mergers. So Facebook buys Instagram, which makes it extremely powerful. But um, but the way our antitrust enforcement works, we measure that and we say, well, Instagram doesn't have that much profit and it'll actually help consumers because they're giving away things for free. So we don't have mechanisms to understand those kind of mergers. The other thing is that we actually do have laws, monopoly, anti-monopoly laws, and Microsoft was um, prosecuted under monopoly laws. It's called Section 2 in the Department of Justice because you can't 
um, do anti-competitive things um, as a monopoly. Monopolies are legal, but um, certain beha- corporate behavior, if you're a monopoly, it, um, is not legal. And we can prosecute that, but the Obama administration, which came in with a lot of making a lot of noise about reviving anti-monopoly prosecutions and enforcement, um, didn't do anything. They they did one insignificant. Other BFFs with Google too. And they are uh, in bed with Silicon Valley and Google and um, Facebook and um, and Uber. And so uh, this is part of the kind of elite democratic um, uh, um, complicity that gave rise to uh, he shall not be named. <laughs> okay. So this episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On on which depressing note, Kathy? Yeah. um, Since we're talking about Google and Facebook. Yeah. Talk about Google and Facebook. Well... I have to say, this, this it's a big topic, but what we're going to talk about is like the fake news phenomenon on Google and Facebook um, and the extent to which people are starting to, well, are not starting to, have, are, are claiming that it swung the election for Trump, that fake news, um, especially on the right, was, uh, was very... Um, it was very influential, especially in the last three months of the election. I think the fake news actually did better on Facebook than actual This is news. the fascinating BuzzFeed report that came out this week. They saw the most successful and most shared news articles on Facebook were fake news. And it, it, um, inevitably, fake news means like right-wing anti-Hillary news. And for the past couple months, that was much bigger right. than any of the real news. So the question is, like, first of all, how influential is it? And the answer is we don't know because uh, it's hard to measure that and Facebook isn't sharing their data. Um, And then the second question is, what should Facebook do about that? Um, And I would argue that it's actually just kind of an extreme case of something that's a much bigger problem. And the the much bigger problem, which which people know about, is just sort of the echo chamber um, aspects of social media in general. But let, let's start. Let's stick with the fake news because there's, yeah. the news hook here yeah. is that both Facebook and Google, after having made unknown amounts of money during the election on political advertising and from 
news sites and from from fake news sites who've been trying to seed these fake news articles by um, buying advertising on Facebook and Google. Um, both of them came out after the election when it was too late and said, oh, we're going to no longer accept advertising from these sites. And so if you're a Moldovan teenager putting together a bunch of fake alt-right news stories, um, you can still put those on the internet and people on Facebook can still share them, but you can't buy Facebook ads which sponsor them. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the the face, the Facebook cutting them off from ads seems like a more minor thing than Google doing it, right? Because AdSense really, I mean, it may, making it hard to promote the stories using Facebook ads obviously makes it a little bit more difficult for them to go viral, but they still can just through their own natural, you know, catchy fake newsiness. Um, but AdSense is actually the bigger one, it seems here. It's like saying, okay, this is their revenue stream. So it makes it less lucrative. So to do they it. get a whole bunch of traffic to their fake news stories. But if they can't monetize that traffic, then there's no point. And the way they monetize that traffic is by serving Google ads, basically. Yeah, it's unclear. Some, you know, one guy gave an interview to the Washington Post who runs a, he thinks of it as sort of a higher class fake news site. He calls it satire. Um, and he's actually, it's fascinating if you find it. He, he's this dude who just feels extremely guilty because now he thinks he may have actually helped swing the election for Trump, even if that wasn't his intention. He was just trying to clown the guy's supporters, basically, and make you know $10,000 a month doing it off AdSense. But even he thinks that maybe he'll be able to continue making a living, that this isn't really going to cut him off. So the guys who do this are possibly more resilient than, you know, the initial than they're, they're, they're resilient folks. They're, they're going to find ways around this or they think they will. I mean, even just the Facebook and Google coming out and saying they're going to take a stand on this is a huge cultural shift because, um, well, it isn't a cultural shift yet. But I've, my theory is that they won't actually be able to follow through with this promise um, until they come up with a definition of what's fake. And that's really, really something they've tried to avoid for the last 10 years. Right. It, it does sort of frighten me, the prospect of these giant Silicon Valley monopolies trying to make judgments about um, speech. Uh, and this is where I've been very torn about the Twitter debate about all the um, trolling, anti-Semitism, racism. The, I mean, it's obviously appalling um, that people have to put up with that. But on the other hand, I'm not sure I want Twitter making decisions about um, what they block and what so they don't twi block. So Twitter has been blocking known ISIS accounts. There's been this kind of whack-a-mole thing where, they, where ISIS accounts have sprung up and then Twitter has closed them down and they've sprung up and closed down for, for years now. And then much more recently in the past couple of weeks, they've started closing down a whole bunch of alt-right accounts as well. Um, not because of like not because of the reason they clo closed down Milo's account, which was the harassment and the and the um, just beyond over the line behavior, but just because they are members of these sort of hateful groups. And yeah, I, there there is I can see um, issues when you have something which approximates approximates a public utility like Google or Facebook or Twitter for these big private unaccountable companies to make their own determinations about what's acceptable. Obviously, they have every legal right to do that, but it is a little right. bit scary. I mean, a few months ago, uh, I think it was Facebook banned the uh, famous picture of the little girl in Vietnam uh, who was a victim of a napalm raid. Um, we, we don't want them doing that. Um, and having these people making these judgments 
Um, it worries me, although objectively speaking, all of this hateful um, harassment is obviously appalling and disgusting. I, I don't think we can avoid it. I mean, look, these companies have made their uh, made their money based on this as- assumption that everything in the world can be turned into an algorithm. But the truth of the matter is, and we just discussed this in the last segment, algorithms are not neutral. There are embedded values in it. And so the question is, like, which values? Um, and they have to choose, they have to, like, at the end of the day, and I've been getting all these emails from all my data nerd friends saying, here's what Facebook should do algorithmically to solve this problem. None of them are, are going to work. You actually have to have humans yeah. that make judgments at the end of the day, or we're just going to leave it the way it is. So when you said uh, there was part of a broader problem, then you went on to say about social media echo chamber, I thought you were going to say something different, which is a, it's a part of a broader problem of fake news in this country, because I think the biggest purveyor of fake news in this country is Fox. Um, you see, and that is exactly why you should not be in charge yeah. of determining <laughs> yeah. what is fake news. But I think, yeah. I think I mean, I, there the is, Black Panther Party was not but uh, the way I see it uh, is stealing that votes. we are getting our news now um, through AMP pages and Facebook instant articles um, and various other things which look good on phones. And the thing that they all have in common is that they all look the same. That once upon a time, you, you would watch a newscast on a certain channel, you would pick up one newspaper as opposed to another newspaper, you would tune to one part of the radio dial rather than another, and you would get a set of news stories from that one bundle and you would trust that one bundle and even if and what's more you would wind up receiving news from that one bundle even which you didn't know you wanted to get but just because you would read the whole bundle and some of it would be more interesting and some of it would be less with the unbundling and social mediaization of news what we have is that you're only reading the stories you want to read and that you the branding of the organization that has created the news story has never been less important. So if you're reading a news story, which is AMP or Facebook Instant Article, it's very easy to not know or not see or not care where that story came from. And so it becomes much, much easier for people to digest and believe fake news. And about 15 years ago, a friend of mine was teaching literacy in New York public schools. And he was like, these are kids who have grown up on the internet. And this is pre-phones, but it was still like post-internet. And he was like, go on the internet and find stuff and tell me what's true. And he found that the kids who had grown up on the internet were surprisingly bad at being able to distinguish between truth and falsity online. That if it was on the internet, they just believed it. Yeah, And... I think that that syndrome has now expanded to the entire country and that the entire country is getting its news from the internet and has no real ability to tell the difference between what's true and what's false. I, I also want to come back to this kind of idea of false neutrality, right? As as long as you are serving people, like Facebook's algorithm is designed to serve people a certain kind of news. That is That is a slant. That is a slant in their algorithm. It's saying, okay, you're going to get X kind of thing. And that is making a determination about what people read and can't and aren't going to read in their day. So every decision they make is is going to 
be toying with what people, information people consume. And at that point, you have to, I, I think, say, washing your hands and saying, oh, well, it's neutral. It's just because other people are deciding it. So, like, well, your algorithm lets other people decide it. So uh, this, I, I'm just basically elaborating on your earlier point, but I think it is the core one. Every time they come back to their defense, or the, or they come back to neutrality as a defense. It's like it's fake neutrality. And it's not even neutral because what they're doing is they're putting their thumb on the scale very, very hard. Um, in favor of the most sensational news articles. Because those are the ones which get the most engagement and most shares. And right. the algorithms are designed to surface the articles which get the most engagement and, and right. most shares. Right. So I would argue, okay, so I'm going to take the side of Facebook for just a second. I know that's impossible, but <laughs> Facebook would argue, hey, we are giving people what they want and we're de defining, we're using the proxy of what they want by what they click on, what they engage on in and what they share. And the problem is that people have, this is a pretty bad proxy of what people actually want in a long-term way. People actually probably want to read news that they trust from a trusted news source like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or something. But what they actually click on are like pictures of Kim Kardashian and, and listicles. And so there's that skew there. Yeah, and that, that skew propagates and creates uh, creates the news world um, in its own image. Yeah. And so I would argue that it's it's... Even if you give Facebook the benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to put the third thumb on the scale, their choice of poor proxy for what people actually want um, is having an, this incredibly negative effect. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's the instant gratification. It's it's the difference between when people think about what they want. They they want to lose weight, right? But yes. in the moment, they want the cookie, too. They want it's two like different being, things. It's and like which being is Facebook going to cater to? Surrounded by cookies when you're all, trying to be on it. All the time. No, absolutely. That is what Facebook's well, news environment is. When we had broadcast networks and people worried that TV was a vast wasteland, um, we had regulation, uh, government intervention that required them to do uh, things like provide public uh, broadcasting, um, to fund, uh, to have equal time for politicians, to uh, so that there, there was some requirement to offset their uh, monopolization of the the broadcast or, you know, oligopoly of the broadcast airwaves with um, information that served the public good. Maybe maybe we need to regulate uh, Twitter and Facebook and Google so that they provide that too. Is equal time, is that like, does that a, a, apply to Fox News? No, they're cable. So they Oh, so it's only network news. Yeah, although I think it's been eroded uh, now um, over the years. I want that to expand to everywhere. Right. And uh, uh, so the, the cable news has to produce C-SPAN. Yeah. I'm not saying it would solve every problem, but that is a problem. I, 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 I am equal time opposed is, to equal time. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a bad idea in general. Another conversation. But that's, but, another, yeah. that's <laughs> another conversation. We yeah. have something much more interesting to come on to. <laughs> um, which, so, Jordan. Yes. What we have is a right-wing disruptive president being elected to come <laughs> in and make massive, unexpected, sweeping changes that no government would ever dream of making. To possibly drain the swamp, you might even say. <laughs> to, to, to drain the swamp. And um, we are talking about, of course, about Narendra Modi. Yeah, of course. We're talking about <laughs> the prime minister of India. <laughs> Who did you think we might be talking about? Um, how's that going? Okay, so uh, Modi was elected partly on a little background. He was, he was elected largely on this platform of ending corruption in India, which is an endemic problem there. There's just huge black market economy. There's all kinds of you know palm greasing and just all kinds of skullduggery in government. Um, and so he was going to fight this. And then he hasn't really done a lot except 
about a week ago, he made a surprise announcement. He just got on the air at 8 p.m. and said, at midnight tonight, um, all 500,000 rupee notes are no longer going to be legal tender. Just no more. No more in this country. They will be worthless. And you now have you know, X amount of time to go and exchange these notes to get, you know, other denominations of cash. But what... It's not even cash. You, you have X amount of time to take them to the bank yeah. and deposit them in your bank account yeah. where it becomes electronic money, which can be taxed. Yeah, uh, that, that to get a lot And to more. add to that, if, it's a, if it exceeds a certain amount of money, you will be investigated. Yes. If, yeah, if it's more than 250,000 rupees, then we're going to start raising an eyebrow and saying, where did all of this money magically come Ex- from? Exactly. Do they care about the black market per se, or do well, they just care about tax avoidance? Well, so just to give a little, little extra context for this, this is about 86% of the circulating cash in India. We're talking about- these, By value. By value. These, these two notes are- makeup. So, I mean, we're talking about a massive disruption in India, uh, in Indian life. And suddenly what you've gotten is now, well, you know, long lines of people queuing up to try and go hand in their money and freaking out and total disruption of uh, rural economies that essentially- ATMs running dry. ATMs running dry because they can't even replace them with new notes. I mean, there was very, it seems to have been very little planning. And, and especially in the rural economy, this is problematic because it's almost an entirely cash economy already. And these were the notes. And so what you're getting is people are still trading in these 1,000 and 500 rupee notes, but they're trading at a discount and all kinds of things are just going haywire. And, so India is is a fascinating, fascinating yeah. country from a payments perspective. Because um, actually, actually has arguably the most sophisticated electronic payments infrastructure in the world. Yeah, for part Um, of the population, though. (laughs) Well, actually, for most of the population. Like, there's this national identification number, which you get when you're born. Yeah. And along with the national identification number, there's a bank account. So really, you every Indian gets a bank account at birth. And the, the ability to transfer money from one bank account to another bank account is instant. It doesn't take you know, three days like it does in the United States. It takes three seconds. And India has made a very, very concerted attempt to try and basically move everyone off of cash, which has a huge number of, of problems associated with it. Um, not just crime and corruption and, and that kind of stuff, but it's just an inefficient way of paying for things in general. And it is working very slowly, and these things don't happen overnight. But it seems like... Narendra Modi really wants this to happen overnight. Well, so, yeah, I mean, you're talking still about a country of like 600 million people or so. And I think it's still about half of them, even though they technically have a bank account, they're still unbanked. Right. Uh, you know, it's still, you know, which is basically a population the size of the United States unbanked. And now you're cutting into their cash in the name of, you know, stopping essentially black market transactions. And given that, like, yeah. it's, I've been looking, I looked at a couple of articles from India about the long lines for the banks and the yeah. ATMs. And the people in those lines are just kind of like, yeah, this is a pain in the ass, but actually it might be worth it. Well, some... It depends on who the people are. Yeah. And and yeah, and I think the first order effect of this has been what was intended to a large extent, which was that the undocumented, untaxed parts of the economy are feeling it worse. If you have a pile of millions of rupees worth of cash, um, and you don't have a bank account or it, or it's just a very small bank account which the authorities would look at you askance if you suddenly deposited millions of dollars of cash into it, um, then, then you're going to be forced to 
either lose that money or pay huge amounts of tax on Aren't it. Aren't the really corrupt and really wealthy people uh, not ha- keeping big piles of yes. cash around? <laughs> um, so, yeah. so, so this, this is goes up to getting... like probably the 98th percentile of right. the corruption. Right, so they're the, really yeah. powerful uh, The top people, 2% uh, still have their have Swiss bank accounts. gold and have Swiss bank accounts. Yeah. And yeah. so you're really uh, um, completely attacking essentially the wrong people. Well, I mean, the, I think what it... Tax avoiders who are not the big fish. What it theoretically gets at is day-to-day corruption, right? Like small businesses that are just hoarding, you know, doing all cash under the table and not recording their profits, things like that. And like, and that is a problem in India. You you don't have a you don't have enforcement of tax laws and accounting standards and that like you do in a in a Western demo- or you know a Western fully developed country. It's a little um, bit like Mexico is is one of my favorite examples of this that. Um, there was a big attempt a few years ago to try and extend the income tax in Mexico. Mexico historically had like zero or very low income tax and quite a high um, level of income you needed before you ever started paying income tax. And you wound up getting most of the country not paying any taxes, um, which sounded like a wonderful idea in principle, especially when the country was getting billions of dollars in oil revenues from, from Pemex, the state oil company. Um, oil co- revenues then started falling, but more to the point, people realized that it was a good idea to have a relatively broad tax base. Even if the amount of tax collection is low, it creates a civil society to have people paying something into the system and to just be part of the system. Or another yeah. way of saying that is if you have a cutoff, then it's like you have every incentive to avoid seeming to make that much money, right? So that's, every dollar above that that's part has got to be under the table. I, I think also, you know, you have to kind of, again, separate um, intentions versus implementation here and what's going on in India. I mean, to give you a sense of like kind of the dysfunction that that's unfolding, at the same time, they're demonetizing these 500,000 rupee notes. They've released a 2,000 rupee note. They've actually given, they're, they're now creating a higher denomination, which no, like experts have been saying, it's a puzzle. I don't know why they're doing that. That should theoretically make it even easier for really high rollers to hide money. And so I, you know, there is a world, I think, where they did that, where they would have done this and announced it and said, we're going to do this over time and we're going to demonetize and we're going to try to push people into the recorded electronic system. And that would have made a lot more sense. But the, the they're calling this shock and awe. And it's not uh, it's no one's seems to have fully understand why Modi. Decided well, to I do mean, it this, way. this being India, the reason is uniquely and obviously Indian, which is that he's not just doing this to crack down on corruption and crime. So, he's also doing this to bash Pakistan. And so what he's doing is he's blaming Pakistan for what he claims to be a rash of fake 500,000 rupee notes. Um, and so he's like, the evil Pakistanis will no longer be able to make money by printing up these fake bank notes and they're not going to be able to fake the 2,000 rupee notes. So we are bashing Somehow. Pakistan <laughs> this way. I also um, thought that yeah. it was actually like, so that people who were not, not Swiss bank account corrupt, but like just below that, wouldn't be able to hide their money that theori- right beforehand. Theoretically, but I mean... It, giving them advance notice. Yeah, would- because there's no way of converting your black market thousand rupees into white market 2000 rupee notes no. because you need to do that via a bank. And once it hits the banking system, it becomes visible. But to people the are still doing, people are still buying gold, which is always, and, and things like that, which in India is actually, I mean, that's, it's that, that's always been it's, a, it's, it's non-trivial to buy gold with thousand rupee notes. I mean, yeah, to give you a sense, I guess listeners a sense, I mean, a thousand rupee note is about 15 bucks. It's, it's 1470, I think right now. So it's, it's not, 
non-trivial, but I mean, people are finding a way. Again, but I'm saying the gold merchants oh, yeah, aren't, yeah. aren't selling. If I'm a gold merchant and you come to me with a stack of thousand rupee notes and say, "Can I can I buy some gold?" I'm going to be like, eh, no, not really. Or if I do, it's going to be at a big discount. Well, and that's where you're getting the 20 to 60% discounts, exactly. And that's... So what could Modi do, going back to Jesse's comment, like what could Modi do to, to deal with those top 1%? I mean, like I'm, I'm actually kind of like in awe of this. I feel like it's it's brash. Like it, I, it... I, feel, I feel like, yeah, Jesse's being a little bit harsh. I mean, the problem of the international plutocrat Swiss bank account corrupt class is not an Indian problem. It's a global problem. But, and but maybe really Modi will actually address it. Really, there's only one country in the world which manages to successfully tax all of its citizens on their global income. And we're living in it. It's the United States. No other country has solved this problem. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about bringing various regulatory regimes in accordance with each other and international banks and blah, 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 blah. But this is not something that can be done at the individual government level in India. This can only be done either at the global level or, interestingly, for U.S. citizens. I think that overstates uh, the American uh, tax authorities' uh, power here. But, um, you know, I think that what you would want to do uh, if you were – Modi and you want is to make at least some nominal efforts uh, to try to address the plutocrats as well to um, sort of say we're going to share the the pain. I mean, one of the things would be uh, transparency on uh, make new requirements for. I, I don't know enough about it, but n- new requirements for disclosure of uh, foreign assets and things like that. Um. So I feel like that's probably enough demonetization for one day. You know, it's it's a good word, but you don't want more than about 10 minutes of it. Uh, <laughs> India has to live with it. So that's a whole other thing. Um, let's have a numbers round, people. No. Who has a number? I have a number. What's your number? Uh, 50 million, which is the number of dollars expected by this guy. I'm trying to remember his name. Renault Laplanche. Renault, my good old friend Renault from Lending Club. Yeah, so he got kicked out of Lending Club for various um, devious acts. Um, And now he's started a new company called Credify, which is exactly the same thing as Lending Club. And he's expecting $50 million in revenue this year. That's That's to compare with 26 or maybe 29 billion in Lending Club last year. So it's small. But, you know, Lending Club started small too. We'll see. I got a number. 9.31%, 9.31%, which is uh, the rally in financial stocks since the Trump victory. Um, and I think I draw, and uh, the stock market is up about 1.75. And I um, draw several lessons from this. One is that I and others expected uh, the stock market to take a big slump. Uh, after the Trump election because um, we're turning into a banana republic. Um, uh, That was wrong. Um, And so you should not try to predict these things. But the other thing is to um, focus on the fact that, as we all know in this room, the stock market is not the economy, that people were um, celebrating the stock market's surge under the Obama administration as if this was an accomplishment. Um, And it's an accomplishment for a very few, uh, for investor, the investor class, but it doesn't have to do with um, the larger economy. So we should stop focusing on this as a barometer of success or failure. My number is 1.6 million, which is how much 
uh, the Secret Service had to pay Donald Trump for use of his airplane during the election. This was... Um, this, they, is, this is a dollar uh, number. Yeah, $1.6 million. Um, and it was because the idea was that essentially they had to accompany Donald Trump when he was flying around on his private jet and that cost, and he was allowed to bill them for that service, like as if they were, you know, United Airlines or something. And so it looks like he's going to be able to continue doing this whenever like the Secret Service has to accompany his kids or anyone, any of his advisors flying on his private jet during the presidency. But we won't know how much he charges because whereas the campaign had to reveal who was paying them what, um, Trump as president will not. So it's just, well, he'll be able to make some he has a new revenue stream now essentially through his jet i think i mean i'm glad because he says he's not going to be taking the presidential salary so he needs to get money somehow right? yep somehow um my number is 7.2 million which mm -hmm. is the number of dollars that have been received in donations since the election by the aclu um, 120,000 um, individual donations have poured into the ACLU, including, well, as we talked about last week, one from me. Um, and this is unprecedented in ACLU history, and this is a, a welcome and necessary windfall for them. We did um, ask you, lovely listeners, to tell us what you were doing. And the, the ACLU came up quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. We're, you guys are awesome, by yeah. the way. We're, we're going to, we will get on it and we will collate all of them and figure out exactly what y'all said. We'll, we'll put together a list as promised. Buy a subscription to a, a non-fake news organization <laughs> near you. <laughs> or just, if, if you want to be able to write it off against taxes, you can always just donate to ProPublica. It's true. It's a registered non-profit. <laughs> the girls idea. need a new pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's it. On, on the subject of Jesse's daughter's shoes, we will bring this episode of Slate Money to a close. Um, thank you for listening to us. We do appreciate it. Subscribe. Press that little subscribe um, button. Uh, we also have a link to our live show in Brooklyn on December the 15th, which is all going to be all about craft beer. There's literally like five tickets left, so jump on that and come drink beer with us at Union Hall in Brooklyn on December the 15th. Thank you very much to Jesse Isinger, whose article with Justin Elliott about antitrust experts can be found on ProPublica.org. Email address is slatemoney at slate.com. The producer this week is Zach Dynasty, and executive producers are Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. The Panoply Network is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week with a, I think, a, a very interesting combination of algorithms and um, philanthropy with a rather special guest you're going to meet, you're going to like next week. It's going to be good. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.